You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome, and uh, it's an exciting, uh, exciting time to be with uh, Michael Pettis from Peking University. Those of you that are avid China watchers, Michael has a, a very uh, strong voice and a voice that uh, many of us uh, follow. So it's, uh, I've been looking forward to getting uh, to spend some time with you, Michael, and uh, talking about talking about something near and dear to my heart, which is um, uh, both kind of gross and net capital flows. And I know to the Real Vision universe. Uh, that might sound like an arcane subject, but it's it's really basic. It's actually very basic as far as uh, uh, how capital flows around the world inter inter integrate or interfere uh, with China, and uh, and would love to begin by getting your view of when you compare China's current account surplus over the last decade to its kind of uh, it's been sliding down into call it net zero or and even a deficit. And uh, being, uh, I believe it's being made up uh, when you look at the numbers by uh, by basically uh, investment flows uh, into China via Hong Kong. How do you see that evolving over the next five to ten years from today? Uh, what do you expect capital flows uh, from the current account and then capital flows from the investment account uh, to look like over the next few years? Well, um, you know, I've been arguing since last year that. Uh, the claim many economists have made, which is that China's current account surplus is going to contract at some point into deficit, I think is based on a bit of a misunderstanding or, or based on straight line projections that don't really apply. Now, China did run a current account deficit in the first quarter of this year, but that was that was because of COVID nineteen. Um, they are now running huge surpluses, some of the biggest surpluses that they've ever run. And I would argue that the way to think about the current account in China is sort of as a mediator of the whole issue of debt. Uh, the current account surplus, as you know, is equal by definition to the excess of savings over investment. And um, to the extent that China wants to control the growth in debt, then that has a very marked implication for both savings or, or for either or both savings and investment. Much of the debt in China is used to fund non-productive investment, and when I say non-productive, that's not a choice. It's simply that China is over-invested, and if you want to keep growth levels high, basically you have to do what China has been doing for the past ten years, which is to borrow money and invest in infrastructure, whether or not it's necessary. So one of the ways of controlling debt. Um, is to reduce the amount of funding of of uh, of investment of of public sector investment or real estate investment. Another way you can control debt, and we're starting to see that, is to reduce the growth in household debt. You know, five years ago China had a very low household debt level. Today it's one of the highest in the world. It's higher than in the U.S. as a share of household income. And so, to the extent that they try to bring that under control,、um, 
then one of two things must happen. If you bring household debt under control, then you are raising the household savings rate. If you bring investment debt under control, then you are lowering the investment rate. And remember, the current account surplus is savings over investment. So as you try to get control of debt, you're either going to raise the savings rate or lower the investment rate, either one, uh, either, either one of which will cause the current account surplus to expand. So I've been arguing since last year that as China becomes more and more worried about debt, we are likely to see an expansion of the current account surplus. Now, ideally for China, they could expand it back to 8 or 10% of GDP. But we know that the rest of the world is not going to accept that. So we have this tension between China's desire to control the growth in domestic debt and foreigners' willingness to absorb large Chinese surpluses. And how it turns out is, is as much a political question as anything else. We'll see how it goes. But this idea that China is naturally tending towards a zero current account surplus or even a current account deficit is based on an assumption that China is not trying to get control of its debt. And it is. It's failed to do so. It is trying to do so. And, and when you talk about this particular household debt or Chinese debt as, as either local governments or the, or the national government, uh, do you talk about debts? Are you talking about debts in dollars? Or are you talking about debts in, in yuan? Uh, talking about local currency debt in, in yuan or in renminbi. Um, and that's what really matters from the point of view of the current account. Now, to the extent that China borrows or Chinese entities borrow dollars, you would think that that would cause net inflows into the country and would reduce the, the capital exports, which means reducing the current account surplus. But remember that the PBOC, the Chinese Central Bank, manages its currency and has managed it pretty strictly. A lot of people say it's free-floating because they look at dollar uh, yuan, but you shouldn't look at dollar yuan. You should look at dollar versus the CFETS basket, and you'll see it's quite stable. And what that means is that to the extent Chinese entities borrow dollars, those dollars will leave through uh, the increase in PBOC reserves. So there'll be no net change in the in the uh, in in the dollar exposure or in the dollar capital account, right? And when you look at the way that that China uh, interacts with the rest of the world, yeah, I think about China in two ways. I think about it: their domestic economy is in the yuan or RMB, and um, they control they control everything. They control the printing press, the price level, the police, the narrative. You know, they can kind of do whatever they want uh, internally with their own currency, and then. How China Inc., or let's say the, the national government, the Communist Party, interfaces with the rest of the world with the things that China needs, i.e. food, i.e. energy, all of the different base metals, base materials that they have to pay dollars for. Some, and I, I use dollars uh, in, in, a, in an omnibus right. way. I mean, I mean right. dollars, euros, yen, pounds, let's say CFETS basket. And, and I think about China in those two different spheres. Uh, and when you think about how they how they interact with the rest of the world. Do they have more dollars coming in or they have more dollars leaving? And, you know, a current account surplus or deficit is kind of a net wealth transfer. Um, again, if you can net out investment flows. And so when you look at how China interacts with the rest of the world and how they're thinking about their dollar balances, how do you think they're going to move forward with their, their, their capital account is still closed? Would you, would you agree with that? It's, it's, um, 
It's closed for Chinese residents, and it's pretty open for non-residents in the sense that if you wanted to invest a billion dollars in China tomorrow, you could probably do so without any trouble. If you are Chinese and you want to take money out of the country, then that's much more difficult. So they would have what I would call a dirty capital account. It's not open. It's not closed. It's sort of somewhere in the middle. Some things are open. Some things are closed. Now, one thing is we know from, from the historical precedents that when you've had capital controls for a long period of time, the longer you've had them, the more residents are able to get around them. And China's basically had them since 1949. We also know that if you have long trading borders, and China may have the longest trading borders in the world, the harder it is to prevent inflows and outflows. I'll give you a little story. A few years ago, when oil prices were, um, were uh, 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 subsidized within China and were much lower than global oil prices, wealthy Chinese would basically buy oil, load them up into these big oil trucks, drive them to the Thai border, bribe the, uh, the border guards, and then sell the oil in Thailand. That's a form of capital flight, right? Uh, really hard to control those kind of things. So we have to think of China as a very dirty capital control system. A lot of money flows in and out through the current account and also through the capital account. It helps if you're very rich and very powerful. If you're not, it's much harder to take money out. Um, but the really big flows are not small people. The really big flows are, are, are the very wealthy. So the, the capital account is mixed there. Now, uh, I notice a lot of people say that, that China has a dollar shortage problem. I'm not sure I agree with that. Uh, China earns quite a lot of money through the current account, particularly in the second and third quarters of this year. We've seen an explosion in, in the trade surplus and it is probably a net recipient on the capital account. Now, you might argue, but that's not true, because if that were the case, reserves would have to go up. And reserves have been pretty flat since 2016. And I would argue, I, I want to be very careful about saying this because we don't have proof. But if you look at the data, it looks like there's been an increase in dollar inflows into China, and it's not showing up in the reserves. It's showing up in the dollar exposure of other financial institutions. And there are some people who are suggesting that this represents sort of hidden intervention in the currency and a hidden accumulation of reserves. Again, you can't prove it one way or the other, but we are seeing Chinese entities increase their holdings of U.S. dollars quite dramatically, particularly in the last four to five years, but basically since 2017. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, what from from what we see, you know, when you think about the current account, look, so I disagree with you. I think they have a, a dramatic dollar shortage. Or let me rephrase that. A desperate need for dollars is different than a shortage of dollars. So and I, and I'll, I'll I'll unpack that. But when you look at their current account and you study the flows like you do and like we do, you notice that uh, when when crude oil was $100 a barrel uh, and commodity prices were much higher than they are today due to the the Wuhan pandemic. Uh, you've got that you had this situation back in 2015 where the 2015 2016 the current account was headed negative, and when crude oil collapsed uh, in 20 call it 2015, uh, what ended up happening was that the current account expanded again at least almost three percent of GDP, and that's because everything they're buying with dollars was uh, was getting cheaper. 
how much of that effect is contributing to their current account in, in the last couple of quarters in your mind, i.e. with the commodity prices being down. And now, now they're headed a little higher again, but you know, we still have we still have $39 crude oil, which is one of the major, uh, uh, I think, uh, inputs to their to their current account, either positivity or negativity. I think it's a uh, uh, an income distribution problem because, for example, you look at the uh, you look at other oil importers, including the U.S., which is a commodity importer. When commodity prices go down, you don't necessarily see a dramatic reduction in the U.S. current account deficit. And I would argue the reason is because when commodity prices or whatever the U.S. imports, when the price goes down, then U.S. incomes go up. And because uh, a substantial portion of those incomes are distributed to ordinary American households, their consumption goes up. And so therefore imports go up. In China, the problem is that very little of, that, uh, of those revenues are distributed to ordinary households. China runs a current account surplus, a large current account surplus, even though it has the highest investment rate in history, which normally would mean you'd run a current account deficit. It runs a very high, it's been running a current account surplus because the savings rate is even higher. And the savings rate is very high, not because the Chinese love to save, all that Confucian culture nonsense. The savings rate is very high because who saves and who consumes? Ordinary people consume, everybody else saves. Rich, the rich save, businesses save, and government save. And in China, the share of income that goes to ordinary people is so low, among the lowest ever recorded in history, that it's not surprising that the Chinese save most of their income and consume very little of it. So I would argue that that's, that's probably the more important reason, it's the distribution of income. Now, I want to go back to something you said earlier, with which I agree. They don't have a dollar shortage, but they want dollars. And, and why do they want dollars? And there I would refer you to the so-called impossible trinity, which says that when you have an open capital account, okay, China doesn't have an open capital account, but fairly open, then you can either choose to manage your, your currency or you can choose to manage a domestic money supply. And because China manages the currency, basically that means the domestic money supply is a function of reserves, real reserves plus hidden reserves if there are any. And one of the, one of the things people keep asking or keep pointing out is that while the rest of the world has expanded monetarily in response to COVID-19, China has been very prudent. And I would say, no, they haven't been prudent. The fact is, if you manage your money supply, if you manage your currency, you can't expand the domestic money supply unless dollars are coming in. And that's why I would argue China has been so eager to encourage guys like you or anybody else to invest in China, because that's the only way they can expand the domestic money supply. That, that's a perfect point. You know, you say encourage, one could say manipulate. And, and what I mean by that is, um, you know, the hundreds of billions of dollars of capital flows that have come into China uh, have somewhat somewhat been involuntary as far as the U.S. is concerned. And I, and I mean that by looking at the MSCI global indices, at the FTSE uh, bond indice inclusion that we just saw uh, just in the last two weeks. Uh, what China has been able to masterfully do is coerce in the index managers to add them at very large percentages uh, in various global indices to get in front of passive investment flows. So they have hundreds of billions of dollars of U.S. capital, Western capital, 
flowing into China somewhat involuntarily for anyone that's that's indexing either in the equities or the, or the debt indices uh, of the globe. And it's been it's been a masterful um, coercion, in my view, uh, to have a I believe it's a completely closed capital account. You say it's fairly open. But when I look at the SWIFT data and, and I net cross-border currency settlement uh, now running about 1.7% of, of a global currency settlement is RMB based. But if you net out settlement with Hong Kong, it's a zero. They don't, no one around the world accepts RMB as payment for anything. And, and I mean on any scale. Right. Uh, no, and I, so I believe you have a fully closed capital account and you have this scenario where that what they're doing is setting up pipes for dollars wherever they can, right? And, and so how, how do you respond to, to that view? Well, I think they're certainly, they certainly look like they're eager to encourage inflows as much as possible. Now, a lot of the inflows, particularly in the bond markets, were actually um, central bank purchases of, uh, of, of Chinese government bonds as part of a gradual switch towards uh, uh, um, uh, RMB reserves. Uh, one of my former students has tracked that, and he just sent me a message today saying in the last two years, that's declined a lot, but still about a quarter of bond inflows into China are central bank uh, uh, reserve, are central bank purchasing for reserve purposes. Now, what I tell my clients is that as long as total foreign participation in the stock and bond markets is quite low, then I think there is no real concern about moving money in or out. What I argue, and you know, before I moved to China, I was I ran trading desks and capital market desks in, in, on Wall Street, focusing on Latin America. So I have a, a strong um, uh, developing country background. What I argue is that developing countries are really vulnerable to inflows and outflows. And as long as the inflows are quite small, then the chances of being prevented from leaving are quite low. But should the total amount of portfolio inflows become a significant portion of, of reserves, of real reserves, <clears throat> then I would say I would start to worry about the ability to leave when I needed to leave. But for now, I think the total, total portfolio inflows in China are about 800 billion. <clears throat> if you assume a couple of hundred billion are central banks and they don't really move in and out, um, then you might get, you know, in a panic, two or 300 billion leaving. Is that manageable? <clears throat> I suspect dollars held by banks controlled by the PBOC are greater than that amount. So they'd be able to, uh, to support those type of outflows for now. Um, in two years, I probably have a very, very different argument. But for now, portfolio inflows are, are still quite small. And Beijing is extremely eager to, uh, to uh, uh, encourage inflows. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, I'm going to go back to something you, you said earlier about uh, call it long borders and lo long trading borders that I guess uh, beget a, a porous, potential porous. Our relationship with with uh, capital, as you said, it's it's small amounts of capital. Uh, but if the border's long enough and, and it's a, and it's enough people participating, it could be a problem. You know, how do you think about 
the Chinese government's push for things like Alipay and WeChat Pay or WePay, uh, both within China and then in other Belt and Road countries. I, I don't want to go somewhere where, where you're not comfortable talking about. Uh, so, uh, but, but when I, it, this is actually germane to our argument or I'll say our discussion uh, about capital flows. So how do you think about the Chinese payment rails of Alipay and WeChat, WePay, which represent today about 88% uh, of the Chinese payment networks, uh, i.e. capital flowing within China? How do you think right. about how do you think about their push to go to more of a cashless society? And, and uh, is, it, is it Orwellian in, in your view? Well, uh, as, as, as an old-fashioned American, I, I, hate, I hate it. I hate people to know everything that I've purchased and sold or purchased in my case. Um, so, I mean, there are problems with it. There's no question that it's more efficient. But I think, of course, there are political implications that we, that we have to think about. Now, ex extending uh, WeChat and Alipay outside of China, I think, is much more problematic. I've been in China for 18 years, and, and uh, almost from the very beginning, we were assured that within five years, the renminbi would become an international currency widely used around the world. And I've always said that people who think that just don't understand how currencies, international currencies work. Uh, and in the case of China, I've argued that basically the military guys and the foreign affair guys want the renminbi to be the equivalent of the dollar because they don't understand the cost of that. But the PBOC, you know, pays lip service to it, but they've never done what's necessary truly to make the international uh, to, to make the renminbi an international currency. And I don't think they're ever going to do that. And the reason is because we know developing countries are incredibly vulnerable to massive inflows and outflows. And we also know that if you have a terribly rigid and basically insolvent banking system, then you should not allow massive inflows and outflows. And the Chinese banking system, let's be honest, is insolvent. Um, so uh, are, they, are they too stupid to realize that? No, of course not. They know that as long as the banking system is largely closed and the regulators highly credible, then they can protect themselves from the typical developing country problems of financial crises. But the moment you really open up the banking system or the regulators uh, lose credibility, then you run the risk of bank runs and all the things that lead to financial crises. And people forget that not so long ago, China used to have quite a lot of bank runs. When I came to China in 2002, I used to keep a file of bank runs. By 2008, I stopped because they stopped. But within living memory, we've seen concern about the stability of the financial system. And I think the PBOC is very aware of that and very worried about that. Yeah, and in fact, as, as we both know, there have been some bank runs in various regions in China in the last uh, yes. 18 months. And yes. when, when they, when, if you look back to the, when the PBOC essentially allowed uh, not only depositor haircuts, but interbank uh, haircuts of, of up to 30%. Why do you think the PBOC went there uh, and allowed that to happen and caused these various, uh, call it, I don't, know, I don't know, just regional banks, you know, not joint stock banks, not policy banks, not, not uh, SOEs, but, you know, there, there have been uh, bank runs in the last 18 months. Why do, you, why do you think they did that? 
Well, they're they're caught uh, in, in you know in the standard uh, rock and a hard place because on the one hand there's an enormous amount of moral hazard in China, and what's the consequence of moral hazard? We all know there's no lending discipline. You basically lend to anybody for any purpose because it doesn't matter. You'll get repaid, uh, and they want to put an end to that. But how do you put an end to that? Well, you have to introduce insolvency. You know, if you don't, if you never lose money, why should you care who you lend money to? The problem is, after many, many years of this, you have an entire banking system that's built around moral hazard. So you introduce bankruptcy, and that 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 runs the risk of causing such a rapid reordering, a, a chaotic reordering of the bond markets, that you sort of walk up to the precipice and then you pull back again. So the case you're talking about probably is the Baosheng Bank case in May 2018. Yes. Uh, within 24 hours of that intervention, there were rumors that large depositors, not small depositors, small depositors were going to be made whole, but large depositors might take a loss of up to 20%, which is pretty damn good because they should have lost everything, quite frankly. Um, that rumor disappeared within one or two days because the, 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 the reaction in the interbank markets was really dramatic. Interbank spreads went up to 15%, the whole bit. So then they came back and we started hearing talk about a 10% haircut. And I don't even think that happened. I think in the end, they put everyone together and said it's going to be bailed out. And that's the problem that they face. What was the lesson you learned as an investor the lesson you learned is no matter how bad the bank is, you are probably going to get bailed out. And the PBOC doesn't want you to learn that lesson. But but what do they do? If they allow significant defaults, we'll see a chaotic reordering of the bond markets. And if they don't allow significant defaults, well, then the moral hazard distortions continue building up. And I think they're really wrestling with that. I think they're trying to come up with an overall plan because let's face it, all of the small banks are insolvent. The big banks are insolvent too, but the small banks are, they have terrible asset side and they have terrible liability sides because most of their funding is purchased money. So it can, you know, it can leave just like that. So they have a real difficult problem. And so far, you won't be surprised to hear their solution has been to kick the can down the road a little bit longer, a little bit longer, a little bit longer. Yeah. And so... If you were you were talking about projecting out a couple of years, when I look at at uh, the Bank of International Settlement data and you look at um, Bloomberg uh, ticker by ticker, you see that that China's been on a borrowing spree, borrowing in dollars. They're starting to look like a little bit more like a traditional EM, like you you said you ran trading desks in Latin America. You know when you have when you kind of reach maximum internal velocity of your GDP. And and you actually start borrowing more in in dollars or you know, again do, in, in dollars euros yen or pounds. Um, I've noticed that you've seen Chinese corporate borrowing and both financial and non-financial reach almost a trillion three. You know how are they going to deal? How are they going to thread this needle dealing with their dollar debts as this pandemic depression kind of moves through uh, the the emerging world? Well, that's why. People like me, and you mentioned Brad Setzer, uh, like him, are trying to get a grip on what the net position, what the what the gross positions and the net position are of uh, of the central bank, both directly and indirectly. Because since 2017, before 2017, if you looked at other depository institutions, 
their dollar liabilities went up and their, and I'm sorry, their dollar assets went up and their dollar liabilities went up more or less in line. And then beginning around 2017, the dollar liabilities flattened out, but the dollar assets continued rising. So the question is why? What's the purpose of all of that? Um, uh, whatever the purpose is, it means that financial institutions, either the PBOC or the development banks or the large commercial banks, which of course are still controlled by the Ministry of Finance, have accumulated a huge amount of dollars. Uh, so while dollar liabilities are going up, if you measure them either against the inflow of dollars on the current account or if you measure them against the total amount of reserves, I don't think they yet have a dollar problem. Um, I think we may see some companies get into trouble because there are some companies that really should not have been able to borrow. They've borrowed again because of a kind of moral hazard. A lot of investors say, well, the government's not going to let them default because that'll cause so many problems for the uh, for Chinese dollar borrowers. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's not true. But overall, I don't think China has a dollar liability problem yet. Remember, it's got an incredibly high savings rate. It doesn't really need, it's not a typical developing country in the sense that it needs to borrow externally in order to fund domestic investment. It saves far more than it invests domestically. So China's problem is excess savings, not insufficient savings. And do you mean that at the government level or at the household level? Household business and government. Uh, China's in a funny position where household savings are higher than they are in many other countries, but more or less in line with developing countries that don't have good social safety nets. Um, but the problem in China, in most countries, if you have high household savings, you'll have low business savings, low government savings. In China, you have high household savings, high government savings, high business savings. And together, they give China the highest savings rate in the world. Well, but remember, it's not because of thrift. It's because of a very low distribution to ordinary households. So uh, that's another way of saying that the the super elite. So you're saying the wealth gap is is uh, therefore the widest of any in the world. Is that is that your conclusion? It's a double problem. One is the wealth gap. And then the second is or let me put it differently. One is that households retain a small share of total GDP. And then the second problem is that within the households, wealthy households retain a very large share. And of course, wealthy households don't consume their income. It's the ordinary and middle class households that consume and they have a low share of a low share. Right. And when you think about the distribution of the constituency in, in China, you have you have 90 million Chinese uh, party uh, communist party members. Let's call them the wealthiest ones. Then you have four or five hundred million people that have been uh, elevated from abject poverty to some sense, some semblance of middle class, then you still have almost a billion people that are far below the poverty line. Right. And so when you we began this call by you saying household debt in China now exceeds that of the United States. And then in, in the next sentence, you say, but household savings are the highest in the world. And so I'm trying to square the circle for people that aren't uh, economics professors. How can we both have the highest debt levels amongst the highest debt levels in the world? We have one of the most levered banking systems in the world, almost three and a half times GDP. And yet we also have supposedly uh, the highest savings in the world. How do those how can those things coexist? Well, 
That's true of any country that runs a current account surplus. So in the United States in the 1920s, we had very high debt levels, obviously leading to the problems in the 1930s, but we had higher savings levels. And how do I know that? Because the U.S. ran huge current account surpluses. And remember, current account surpluses just means savings exceed investment. So um, I, was, I was told by the dean of one of the most famous schools here in a debate that what you guys don't understand about China is that, yes, we have high debt, but we have higher savings, so it's not a problem. Nonsense. Japan in the 80s had higher savings than debt. The U.S. in the 20s had higher savings than debt. It just means you're running a current account surplus. Um, the problem is uh, in China and in the U.S. in the 20s, uh, remember uh, Galbraith came up with that term, the bezel, to represent the difference between the real value of an asset and the financial value after it was blown up in bubbles. And I think that's sort of what the problem is. If you take, uh, uh, if you borrow 100 kwai, 100 units of, of renminbi, we call them kwai here, and you invest it in a bridge that increases the value of the economy by 120 kwai, then the debt's not really a problem. Uh, but if you, uh, if you borrow 100 and you invest it in a bridge that only contributes 20 kwai to the economy, now you've got a problem. And what happens in most economies is that you write down that bad investment. And so it reduces future GDP, et cetera, et cetera. But in China, you don't. You continue holding that investment at 100, right? So that allows you a much higher GDP number because... In most countries, you write down bad investment. In China, you don't. So you're basically capitalizing an expense. And one of the consequences is that you show up with a much higher GDP number than you normally would, which is why I say never compare GDP growth in China with that of other countries. It's a completely different number. But the other consequence is that you have 80 kwai of wealth, which doesn't exist. So the problem is that everybody in China is saving, and if you add up all of their savings, it adds up to $100. But if you look at the assets backing those savings, maybe they're worth only $60. So there's a $40 gap there that has to be allocated. And by rolling it over, you just don't allocate it. The good thing about a crisis is that you immediately take the loss and it's allocated. And I would say in China, there is a real reluctance to do so for obviously political reasons. And so as a result, a lot of the savings is, is sort of phantom savings. It's $100 backed up by $40, not backed up by $100. Yeah, that, that's actually very well put. And now, now I know why you're a professor. That's very well uh, explained. Uh, and, and this goes back to the gross and net issues uh, that, that you saw in the U.S. banking system. Uh, in 2007 and eight, you know, uh, anyone's yeah. analysis of uh, of the net value of Lehman Brothers came up with uh, thirty two dollars a share in equity. Uh, but when you looked at, at the gross numbers, they you know they were thirty five times levered. And um, in an environment where you actually have to sell a few things, uh, we all know the equity was worthless, and even the debt was only worth about thirty five cents on the dollar. Uh, and so. When you when you and Brad Setzer look at gross and net, um, how how ominous is the gross side today? Um, the numbers are really really big, and the the problem is that small differences in your estimates have a huge net effect. So 
uh, what I would argue is that the net numbers are pretty ugly, but we can we can see them through the balance of payments. Um, I think the real problem is this idea that there are hidden losses that haven't been allocated. And the whole problem of adjustment is the allocation of those those uh, those losses. You know, I've been a so-called China bear for a long time. I think I was the first person to really argue based on my developing country experience uh, that China was overly reliant on debt for growth. And in those days, you'll probably remember you had all these idiots saying, no, no, you don't understand China. Culturally, there's no debt in China, which is, you know, bullshit. Um, they were already overly, overly reliant on debt. And uh, in 2015, 2014, when everyone expected China to have a financial crisis, I actually got listed in the Wall Street Journal as one of the China bulls, which, which really made me laugh. It was uh, quite pleasant to be called that for a change. And they considered me a bull because I argued China is not going to have a crisis. Because a crisis, as you know, is a balance sheet problem. And if China, you look at the balance sheet and say, they look absolutely terrible, but the regulators can restructure the liabilities at will. So you're very unlikely to have a crisis. Now, is that a good thing? Well, it depends. Economically, the good thing about a crisis is that you very quickly write down the losses and then you begin the capital allocation process again. If you don't have a crisis, you don't really do that process. It's better not to have a crisis from a political point of view and from a social point of view. But I would argue over the long term, not having a crisis means it takes you much longer to adjust to the problems. And I think that's the position China is. I would argue that China will not have a, you know, a, a Brazil 1980s adjustment or a U.S. 1930s adjustment. It will have a Japan 1990s, 2000s adjustment, a very, very long period in which it wrestles with the debt and in which growth rates are basically close to zero. Okay. And, you know, if you look back to this concept of crisis, one could argue that when, when China got to Q3 2016, they had this scenario where you saw a trillion dollars of reserves run or evaporate in a very short period of time. You know, the, the Chinese uh, insurance companies and, and uh, you know, uh, tycoons were buying anything in the West that had positive cash flow and some things it didn't even have positive cash flow. Uh, you saw, you know, outward, outward bound acquisitions got 2016. $220 billion, and that actually depreciated the, the RMB almost 10% versus the global basket. And, and that's when the capital clampdown happened. The Chinese government stuck their finger in every crack in the wall that they could find. One could argue that Q3 2016 was a large crisis that was metastasizing that they had to try to stop. Would you agree with that? Well, certainly the PBOC behaved uh, as if they were pretty frightened. Um, so they were extremely worried. And again, I would, I, would, I would draw you to the so-called impossible trinity. And that is, if you manage the currency, and they were desperate to manage the currency, they didn't want it to collapse, then you have no control over the domestic money supply. And if reserves contract, the domestic money supply contracts. So they had real difficulty in pushing growth pushing debt-based growth because they couldn't accommodate it on the monetary side. So they never want to see that happen again, which, by the way, is one potential argument for why you may see an accumulation of reserves outside of the central bank, like the Japanese did in the 1980s. Um, 
But yeah, I think that's I think that was certainly an important issue. But I would make a distinction between external debt and domestic debt in 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 China. I don't think China has an external debt problem. I think it has a domestic debt problem, like the U.S. in the 30s, like Japan in the 90s.、Uh, it's not a problem like Mexico and Brazil in, in in the 1980s. It's a very different kind of problem. And I would say, look for the 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 adjustment process in the adjustment of domestic debt. I think they can pretty easily pay external debt if they wanted to. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-ads.com. Got it. Got it. So as you look forward,、um, I, you've been very generous with your time here. As you look forward in the next two, three years, and you 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 note that、uh, there was a Pew Research study out、uh, just yesterday showing how China,、uh, as a as a national government, is polling versus the rest of the developed West. It actually hit a new low. It's polling somewhere between uh, uh, legislators and hedge fund managers as far as、uh, a favorability rating. In some countries, it's below twenty percent positive.、Um, how does that、uh, China's handling of this uh, pandemic uh, and she's let's say are、uh, releasing the pandemic、uh, externally while closing it down internally? How does that interface with the rest of the world from a banking perspective over the next? Two, three years, five years. How do you see China's economy evolving? Given, and I know you don't really want to go to geopolitical issues, but let's just say, given the fact that there are geopolitical tensions, what do you think China's economy is going to be able to put together over the next two or three years,、uh, despite again、uh, these problems? Well, my. My point of view is very heavily influenced by、uh, Albert Hirschman, who I think was one of the great economists of the second half of the last century.、Um, and Hirschman argued that there there are development strategies that really work up to a period of time, and it work they work on specific conditions. And the problem that developing countries have always had is that once those conditions are resolved. Then they should shift to a different type of development strategy, and they're never able to do so. Probably because the constituencies that benefited from the earlier model have become very powerful, and they prevent a shift in which they no longer benefit. What does that mean in the case of China? Well, when China began the the reform and opening up in 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 the late seventies and early eighties. You have to remember that China had gone through five decades of anti-Japanese war, civil war, and then Maoism, and as a result, the Chinese economy was a shambles. Right? It had no investment. There were no manufacturing capacity. There was no subway anywhere in China. I think there were four commercial airports, no highways, nothing. So, what did China need? At that point, China just needed as much investment as possible. You could throw money in the air, and it would be productive. And so that's what China did. It was a very good growth model. They forced up the savings rate by by forcing households to subsidize investment, and they had the highest investment rate in history and the highest investment growth rate in history. And as a result, they closed the gap between what they needed, what they needed, and what they had. 
And as they closed the gap, they grew very quickly, very healthily. I would argue that at some point at the end of the 90s or beginning of the last decade, they basically closed that gap. And what, Her what Hirschman would argue is now you need a different development model, that which is really an institutional reform. You change your political institutions, your economic institutions, legal, financial, educational, whatever you like. It's very hard to quantify. But you change your institutions that now allow your workers and businesses to behave more productively with every given unit of capital. But that's the hard part, right? When you have an authoritarian government like China, uh, 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 accumulating savings and pouring them to investment is quite easy. The hard part now is a redistribution of power in wealth in a way that allows China now to behave more productively with each unit of investment. But unfortunately, one of the things that has to happen is you have to transfer the equivalent of 15 to 20 percent of GDP from governments and businesses, which really means from governments, yeah. to the household sector. So think about the balance of power. Right now, households have half of China's wealth and governments and businesses have half. They're one to one. You have to shift enough wealth to the household sector where they will have three times as much wealth as governments and businesses put together. That's more in line with the US, Europe, Brazil, and other countries. Now, how do you do that without a massive political shift? If you give away that much in wealth, you must give away that much in power too, right? And the problem is that I don't see that happening in China. Obviously, this is a sensitive topic, so I won't go into it too much. But if there are the right set of institutional reforms that China needs to follow, I would argue that the evidence is that they might be going in the opposite direction, not in the right direction. Yeah, agreed. And when you look at at Hirschman's uh, books and his writings, you know what's interesting is uh, you know he he his his ideas laid a framework for um, I guess the existence of capitalism. Uh, right. And uh, it's, again, antithetical to the Chinese Communist Party that capitalism uh, actually takes hold. They believe they have a better system uh, in China of, uh, you know, what uh, you want to call it socialism with Chinese characteristics. Um, and to your point, uh, that wealth transfer uh, from government to the households probably won't happen. Uh, so I I. I can't square the circle as to this Chinese miracle continuing uh, ad infinitum uh, without these natural forces of, as, as you well, know. Kyle, in the 1960s, everybody knew that within two decades, the Soviet Union would be the world's largest economy and it's technologically most advanced. We forget that because today it sounds so idiotic. Right. But everyone believed that from Kennedy right. right on down to Paul Samuelson, who gave us a date, 1984. Yeah. Um, in the 1980s, anyone who didn't think Japan would become the world's largest economy in two days had to be a racist because there was no other explanation. Uh, and I would argue that both of them followed very similar growth models, very heavily investment-driven growth models. Both of them ended up with a huge accumulation of debt, and both of them had terribly difficult adjustments that totally surprised us. Yeah. Now, China may be an exception, but there are at least two two dozen countries that have followed this model, rapid healthy growth, followed by rapid growth and explosive debt, followed by a very difficult adjustment, either in the form of a crisis or in the form of lost decades. Mm -hmm. Again, 
That doesn't prove that that's what will happen to China. But so far, I don't see evidence that China is going to avoid a difficult adjustment. That is a that is a great conclusion to an amazing debate and discussion on these issues. Uh, I commend you for your ability to um, thread a very difficult political needle while, talk, while talking about these uh, financial subjects. You're you're obviously you've obviously become a master at doing so, uh, and we wish you well. We wish you uh, health and safety there uh, in China at your university, and uh, thank you for spending this time with us today. Uh, it's rare when I feel like I got a lot out of a conversation with someone Excellent. about China, and I actually got a lot out of this. So I hope our, I hope the other real, the Real Vision audience also uh, uh, gains a lot of knowledge from this conversation. So I appreciate it. Thanks very much, and I hope we can continue this conversation. Absolutely, my best to you. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lipsandads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com